Alexander Price, and you're listening to The Number Station. For today's episode, I had the pleasure to speak with Mark Stout. Mark is a former intelligence officer with the CIA and State Department, uh, and he now is a historian of intelligence and the director of global security and, and intelligence programs at Johns Hopkins University. And so he joined me to speak about the history of U.S. intelligence in World War One. Most histories of U.S. intelligence tend to start really with um, the period following World War Two and the formation of the OSS and then the CIA. So the the subject of U.S. intelligence in World War One is relatively understudied. Along the way, we also got to talk a bit about the birth of the clearance process. Uh, the practice of domestic surveillance, when there was some concern about Prussian or German-American citizens in the U.S. who might be um, working against U.S. interests. And we also touched on the early relationship between like, intelligence recruiting and elite universities like Yale, and the hesitancy of... Um, U.S. officials, especially State Department and diplomats, uh, you know, their hesitancy to engage in any kind of intelligence activity just out of a perception of that kind of work as very vulgar and uh, ungentlemanly. So Mark, is, uh, so Mark is, is currently finishing up a book on the subject of U.S. intelligence in World War I. But uh, in the meantime, he is quite active on Twitter, and I think he has a super interesting feed. Definitely check him out on Twitter. His handle there is WWIPHD, WWIPHD on Twitter. It was a super interesting conversation, and I'm very grateful to him for taking the time to join us. So, well, I'm Mark Stout. I'm a former U.S. intelligence officer, uh, spent 13 years in the intelligence community, first at the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, and then at the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, I now am an intelligence historian, and I run the post-baccalaureate certificate in intelligence and also a master's degree in global security studies for Johns Hopkins University's uh, Sco- Krieger School of Arts and Sciences Advanced Academic Programs in Washington, D.C., Thank you so much for uh, for coming on. Um, My pleasure. Happy, happy to do it. It's a it's a topic I'm passionate about. You know, we're we're talking about the uh, history of intelligence in the United States and um, especially the early history around World War One. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, how did intelligence get started in the United States late nineteenth yeah. century? You know. Yeah, well, the United States has a broad tradition, not just relating to intelligence, of fighting really big wars and then demobilizing almost entirely. And so this happened during the Civil War, of course, um, and obviously the the Confederate Army got involuntarily demobilized. Uh, The Union Army, though, also demobilized. And even though during the Civil War the United States had built some really um, very uh, interesting and robust and actually effective intelligence capabilities, that entirely went away uh, when when the army was demobilized. And so for the next, gosh, uh, more or less 20 years, the United States had no intelligence service whatsoever. Um, and this was happening at a time when there was a lot of 
ferment and a lot of innovative thinking relating to military affairs and with it intelligence in Europe, right? So at this time, we're seeing the, the rise of Prussia, uh, perhaps most notably, uh, which fights three successive wars and um, really establishes itself as one of the great powers, right? So it defeats Austria uh, and uh, – sorry, it defeats Denmark and then it defeats Austria and then it defeats France. And people were obviously wanting to learn, like, how are the Prussians, uh, who we now call Germans, uh, how are they able to do this so effectively? And one of the keys to this was the Prussian general staff. And the Prussian general staff basically were like the data and planning guys in the Prussian military. And this was obviously a period of, you know, um, uh, sort of modern war, right, with telegraphs and railroads and mass mobilization. And so fighting a war effectively involved all sorts of things like knowing how many men you can put under arms in how many days and, you know, how many trains do you have available on which train lines to get them to which frontier and how many days is that going to take and how many cars and locomotives is that all going to take and so forth and so on. Very data heavy to plan your own side. Um, but the innovation the Germans had beyond that was to realize it would be really useful to, for us to be able to do the same calculation about the people we're going to be fighting, about the French, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the beginnings of the, uh, the Prussian uh, general staff's intelligence office. And quickly, the other major European powers uh, picked up this idea. In, Fran in France, it was called initially military statistics, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And eventually, in the early 1880s, there's finally some uh, U.S. both naval and army officers who are starting to think, you know, our military is just completely in the doldrums. We need to, like, get with the modern program. And they started copying all these things that the Prussians and also the, the French and the Austrians and the British were doing. And with that came intelligence offices. And the Office of Naval Intelligence, the the oldest continuously existing U.S. intelligence service was created in 1883. And then two years later, the, the War Department, the Army, basically, uh, you know, not to be outdone by the Navy, that just wouldn't do, established the thing that became the Military Intelligence Division during World War One. They established that in 1885. And we started uh, learning and, and catching up from the, from the Europeans. So in the 1880s, we're talking like a, a pretty short time after the end of the Civil War. Yeah, about 20 years, well, almost exactly 20 years. Was there any sort of intelligence apparatus in, during the Civil War? Yeah, there was. Um, the issue was that most of it was at the uh, level of individual armies in the overall Union Army, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, it, with some pretty minor exceptions, it wasn't centralized in Washington, D.C. Um, and mm -hmm. so when the various specific armies out in the field, you know, furled their flags and, and, and went inactive, uh, this all went away with them. Uh, and furthermore, um, sort of careful um, records were not kept. It was really only in, you know, in our lifetimes, actually, that, that it became possible to do really serious scholarly work on um, Civil War intelligence. Um, so basically, that entire experience was, as a practical matter, entirely forgotten, except for some stray spy stories here and there, but nothing that would be useful in terms of building new organizations, in terms of, um, uh, you know, doctrine for how you do this, uh, standard operating procedures, best practices, tactics, none of that, none of that. And that all had to be reinvented um, from the American point of view, reinvented from scratch in the 1880s and, and after. And some of this we, you know, uh, thought of from first principles ourselves, just smart people thinking about, uh, you know, problems. But a lot of it also we learned from the Europeans. Um, and if you look at the 
military professional journals at the time of the 1880s and 90s and the first decade of the 20th century, first two decades even of the 20th century. Um, there's lots of discussions about intelligence in its various forms, uh, espionage and 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 you know the invention of the airplane brings a whole new discussion on and spy hunting and all this sort of stuff, but large proportions of what are in these professional U.S. military journals are actually reprints and, as necessary, translations from European journals. Mm-hmm. Uh, even from Argentinian journals, uh, a few uh, you know, uh, a, a few pieces there. Argentina, you know, at this time was an up-and-coming uh, power, um, and you know, there were we were learning from them even. Um, but um, yeah, so we had a lot of catching up to do. And uh, you know, this is more, I guess, just more general military history. But I'm curious, like before, uh, it, it sounds like at this point there was a pretty, you know fully professional developed you know military system in the US but there had only been a United States for you know a certain amount of time and before that were was it British army like did it did that just seamlessly become US army or how, uh, how did that happen yeah no so so back in the revolutionary era we the Americans basically built their army essentially from scratch yeah um, and certainly at the um, tactical level um, obviously a lot of lessons learned from the British because um, some of the you know, major um, revolutionary military leaders, most famously George Washington, <laughs> had been officers in the British Army. Uh, but we also learned from the French uh, and from other continental armies as well, in some cases, because, because you know, officers from those places came, like the Marquis mm-hmm. de Lafayette. Um, so our, our military tradition, broadly speaking, is, is you know, reasonably independent of the Europeans. And um, that wasn't um, just that we developed a lot, a lot of this ourselves. You know, after the Civil War, the Civil War was, a, you know, again, one of these very sort of highly industrialized modern wars with telegraphs and mass mobilization and railroads and, you know, the, the first machine guns and all this sort of thing. In some ways, very, very similar to uh, the, the, uh, some of the things the Prussians were doing in Europe. Um, but the Europeans, while we were very eager to learn ultimately from the Prussians, uh, Europeans generally were not very interested in mining the U.S. Civil War for lessons because they thought we were a bunch of, you know, backward, uh, backward colonials, basically. Yeah, sure. uh, and so that was one of the things that, that came along with the invention of U.S. intelligence in the 1880s was this was part of a broader military reform movement. And another part of that movement was to say, hey, we shouldn't just be learning from the Europeans. We shouldn't just be um, pressomaniacs, mm-hmm. as one leading military uh, thinker of the time put it. But we should also mine our own experience in the Civil War. It's just that the records and the memory wasn't there to mine it with regard to intelligence, but it was with regard to many other military uh, sorts of things, at least on the Army side. And and so prior to this time, like around the 1880s, had the U- United States been engaging in any kind of uh, espionage, or was it really like with the interest in Prussia that um, that that got started? Yeah, um, and and the, the the answer is basically no. Um, now the one exception I would sort of give is that obviously during this period the U.S. Army was uh, busy fighting a series of small wars against the American Indians out in the West. Right, right. So there was there was an ongoing you know small scale set of wars out there. Um, 
espionage per se, as we would understand the word today, didn't really play much, if any, actually, role in that. But scouting mm-hmm. did, right? Um, we, we today might call that reconnaissance. But during this period um, in American history, both uh, – sorry, the, um, the words scout and the words spy were basically synonyms. Hmm. Um, and the idea was, what does a spy do? He goes and spies thing, things, i.e. he looks at things, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I spy with my little eye kind of thing, right? right? And that's what scouts do. That's why they were synonymous. And it was, um, I mean, it's it, process took place over a period of time. But I argue in the book I'm working on that it was during only during, during World War One that espionage and spying for the United States, at least, began to have much more of that flavor that it has today. If a spy isn't somebody who goes someplace with eyeballs right. and looks at things. I mean, it might be, but that's not what we really think of. We think of a spy as being somebody who steals documents from inside an enemy bureaucracy, an enemy foreign ministry, an enemy army, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, and, uh, and so... Um, scouting, or or they might well have called it spying, uh, certainly played a role out in the in the West, uh, fighting the Indians. But other than that, the United States was not involved in any anything like this. And when it now that said, it did do um, some what we might call, for lack of a better term, sort of geographic reconnaissance. This was an era in which even North America, um, uh, well, I shouldn't say even, which North America was not particularly well mapped. So we sent people to places like Canada, um, you know, maybe not entirely undercover, but not specifically acknowledging what they were doing. You know, I'm an officer on a hunting vacation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I may do some hunting, but I'm really here to make maps. Yeah. Uh, there was a certain amount of that sort of stuff that went on. Um, but um, but broadly speaking, the big um, collectors of foreign intelligence for the United States were – naval attaches and then military attaches. So these are naval or, or army officers who are attached, attache is French, the language of diplomacy, attached to a U.S. embassy or, or legation overseas and are basically military or naval diplomats. Um, but at the time, and this is generally, well, sort of a longer story, but this is generally the case today as well. Um, but at the time, um, these folks really eschewed doing espionage, right? If they wanted information from the from whatever government they were accredited to, their host government, they would ask for it. Mm-hmm. And they'd either be given it or they wouldn't. And if they weren't given it, that was the end of that, right? They they were um, sort of sort of sense of um, gentleman behavior, gentlemanly behavior, also of you know diplomatic niceties right the diplomats and people with diplomatic status which these officers had are not supposed to engage in espionage or engage in you know the term you hear these days is um, conduct incompatible with their diplomatic status right um, in 1892 there was one you know one counterexample to this a um, an over eager military attache in France found some um, uh, uh, miscreant to sell them the plans to the fortress at Toulon, which is a major port in southern France on the, on the Mediterranean. It's a major French naval port in the Mediterranean. And um, the French authorities found out about this and they, they prosecuted and sent to jail the guy who sold the plans. And the U.S. ambassador sent the military attaché who, who, you know, bought these from him, um, uh, sent him home. He says, you know, this is, this is stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
we're not going to fight a war with France. Even if we did fight a war with France, we don't have the Navy and the Army to go 3,000 miles and attack too long. And by the way, it's just wrong. And, you know, I don't want a loose cannon like you in my embassy and sent the guys home. Right. Uh, so that was kind of where we were at the time. And so I guess in the, uh, you know, early days, like prior to World War One, there was some uh, debates about the ethics of espionage. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there were um, there were a number of military thinkers, um, both Americans and also one Brit who was fairly widely read among military thinkers who who, who thought about this. Um, and uh, a guy named Arthur Wagner, one of the leading U.S. Army reformers um, on both sort of military issues and also intelligence, is probably the most prominent among them. Um, and he wrote the first book uh, written in the United States um, about intelligence from the point of view of sort of like a, a manual, like a how-to, like, you know, here's, here's, here's how we should conduct intelligence operations. And he was primarily focused on things like cavalry scouting and that sort of stuff. Um, but he had some discussion in there of no kidding espionage. And he and, and most of these others basically adopted the line of, look, um, espionage is ungentlemanly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's distasteful. But in wartime, you don't have any choice. A commander is not going to be successful or is, or is handicapping himself is if he doesn't engage in this distasteful activity. But it is only justified by the gravity of the broader endeavor, which is, you know, war, right? Um, and that furthermore, um, the only people who should be engaged in espionage are – um, military officers, or at least military personnel. I don't know about officers, but military personnel. And that, you know, hiring civilian spies, oh my lord, you know. <laughs> uh, this is just not the done thing. So, you know, this is this is bad. In war, we have to hold our nose and do it because um, we don't have any choice, right? War involves all sorts of moral compromises, right? Um, but generally speaking, this, is, this really shouldn't be done. Um, it, it's unchivalrous. And when they say it's ungentlemanly and unchivalrous, are they speaking specifically of uh, stealing documents, or is there information more generally, like other uh, uh, things going on that they're talking about? Yeah. So at this period, so these folks are writing in the you know the 1890s and 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 the first decade really of the uh, 20th century, and and they're they're still primarily in this observational mode mm-hmm. of thinking about espionage, but but. The question isn't really whether they were thinking about visual intelligence or what David Kahn has called verbal intelligence, right? Stealing documents or, you know, giving a back brief on a meeting. Um, the issue really was um, engaging in deception okay. in order to acquire this information, mm-hmm. right? That was that was the thing which was, which was wrong. Um, it wasn't per se the acquisition of, uh, of information about the enemy. Um, I mean, look, the commander does that when he stands on a hill and looks out with his telescope or his binoculars, right? right, right. Uh, the, the issue was being underhanded about doing it, about getting that information. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the information had more to do with, like, capabilities at this point than intentions? Yeah, um, so that's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, so broadly speaking, um, so, so the, the kinds of things the naval attachés were, were collecting um, was very often, and this is particularly true with uh, – so sorry, the attachés generally and particularly true with the naval attachés, was um, sort of um, 
more sort of technology oriented information like what's the what are the latest advances in steamship propulsion and you know designs of armor plate and that sort of stuff right um, when you're talking about more um, 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 uh, oh, and on the army side, it would be things like, uh, you know, the attaché would go visit the annual, you know, military exercises of the French army and report on what he saw, right, which was being put on as more or less a semi-public display, right? Um, when you're talking about things for the, for the, for directly for military operations, yeah, it's, it's more questions of where is the army in, you know, the enemy army, in what strength, in what direction is he heading, from which you might sometimes be able to infer intentions, but it was much more directly just related to tangible physical realities of, you know, this, this very moment. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, not, not so much about intentions at all. That, again, that comes largely, not exclusively, but largely with the era where uh, in in starting in World War One, or largely starting in World War One, where you're you're trying to steal information from inside enemy bureaucracies. Where so, the plans are being hatched. Sorry, go ahead. So then how did uh you know these sorts of ideas start to change during World War One then? Yeah. So um during World War One um the uh, the United States, um, once it entered the war, uh, it, it started sort of working very, very closely with the French and the British, um, and to a lesser extent, uh, the Italians and the Belgians. The Bel Belgians, you know, were sort of at a different end of the battlefield from where most of the Americans were. They didn't loom super large in our life, but particularly from the French and the British. Um, and they... Um, so they had very close contact with a lot of uh, British officers who were involved in both in, in um, espionage and also in counterespionage and counterintelligence, from whom they learned a great deal. And um, also they just started making sort of – making stuff up doesn't sound quite the way I mean it, but like, you know, smart people thinking their way through problems and coming up with solutions, right? Um and uh, and uh, they also had a few um, sort of uh, how to put this fortuitous opportunities that came along. So, for instance, and probably the most important of the lot, um, though it's not well studied and um, the records on it are um, not as deep as I would like. But um, the State Department, it turned out, had a consular officer, a guy named James McNally, and McNally. Back in about 1907, I think it was, he was serving as a as a as U.S. consul in a in a city in China, and his daughter married a German naval officer. Okay, that was fine at the time. We're not at war with Germany. There's there's no there's no war going on. This is great. Um, but he's got this German naval officer uh, as his son-in-law, and um, as circumstances start to heat up, and as the war in Europe starts, the United States, remember, doesn't enter it until, what, two and a half years in, until mm -hmm. April of 1917, um, that, that, that son-in-law's connections, he's, he's very well connected at senior levels of the Navy and, and, um, and even at the top leadership of Germany, starts being more and more interesting. And the State Department posts McNally to Switzerland during World War I. Uh, Switzerland being neutral, uh, and Switzerland uh, bordering both Germany and unoccupied France. And McNally is able to use these connections through his son-in-law uh, to um, acquire a lot of information about um, German war plans, particularly on the Navy side, um, that, you know, some of which goes all the way to um, President Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. uh, McNally makes a lot of enemies uh, in the U.S. legation in um, 
in Switzerland uh, who are a little leery about, you know, why is this guy hanging out with Germans all the time? Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, President Wilson basically at, at the end of the day tells them to sit down and shut up, that they don't know what's going on. There's bigger issues at play and, and they should, you know, butt out of it. Um, so part of this was also fortuitous that probably what appears – and we don't know if the Germans were providing disinformation. It's certainly possible. But what at least on its face appears to be the best American penetrations of sort of high-level um, German uh, thinking and war planning during the war was sort of fortuitous. Like, you know, a guy just happened to have his daughter marry a German officer 10 years before anybody cared about this sort of thing. And one thing led to another. And so um, during World War One, then were there like uh, – um you mentioned something about State Department yeah. and nominal, you know, the innocence of espionage. And, and, uh... Yeah. So the so the State Department at this time um, did not have today's um, foreign service. Instead, what they had was the diplomatic service and the consular service, and these were two separate entire career tracks mm -hmm. uh, within the State Department. And um, the diplomatic service as one might imagine, was the high-status elite one, right? And they had long believed um, that espionage was just uh, tremendously distasteful, um, and we certainly shouldn't do this. Um, and indeed, there's this, there's this <laughs> wonderful uh, you know, uh, anecdote, if you will, for lack of a better term, that in uh, 1906, so a decade before we enter World War I, um, a former Secretary of State under President Benjamin Harrison, a guy named John Foster, who, by the way, turned out to be the grandfather of Ellen and John Foster Dulles, um, wrote about how um, you know, in the in the time of the early American Republic, uh, you know, the country engaged in uh, lots of bribery and espionage and deceit. But you know, we sort of reflecting the diplomatic service point of view on this. You know, we have we have grown far beyond that and left those uh, left those uh, uh, distasteful uh, practices behind. Um, so that was sort of the diplomatic service attitude. We're not going to have anything to do with this. But um, the State Department also realized that, um, hey, we're fighting a war here for, you know, civilization and the war to end all wars and all that sort of good stuff. And the Germans are, you know, uniquely evil, horrible people and, and must be defeated in the interest of the survival of civilization. And that entails, again, um, you know, rather like what Wagner had been arguing about the army, some moral compromises. We're going to have to conduct espionage operations. Um, so... Let's have the consular service do it. They're a lower class sort of people, um, and um, and you know not not as obviously entitled as sort of the trappings of being you know gentlemen, if you will. Uh, so if we have to do this thing, let's have them do it. Um, and then when um, uh, as as the as the war went on, and the navy and the war department realized that. Um, you know, they're, they're busily collecting human intelligence and conducting espionage overseas. And, and they started to realize that in a lot of places, it would be really useful for their officers to be able to pretend to be State Department officials, right, uh, to, uh, to operate under, under state cover. Um, and state actually was, you know, more than happy to cooperate um, but never gave them cover titles of being diplomatic service officers. They gave them titles of being 
consular officers, specifically vice consuls. Um, there were lots and lots and lots of quote unquote vice consuls running around who were really army officers or navy officers, or for that matter, civilians recruited to do some version of spying by the army or the navy uh, that the State Department had agreed to sort of cast this cover. But the diplomatic service itself who had, you know, remained in inviolate um, to the extent even that, um, you know, sometimes and I know this happened at least a bit in in South America during the war um, that, you know, they would often um, go to links to avoid using State Department communications um, systems and that sort of thing, uh, just so that the State Department officials in the embassies and legations and um, could say that, you know, hey, we 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 are not aware of anything going on here that's, you know, incompatible with diplomatic status. So can I ask you just like uh, generally how representative were these attitudes of, uh, you know, uh, diplomats worldwide? Like was this uh, something that, um, you know, was the the same – did the Europeans have the same way of looking at uh, um, espionage as, as uh, um, I don't know, crude and distasteful? And was that the case, you know, in other places as yeah. well? Yeah. Well well, I haven't directly looked into this, uh, but but based on what I have seen, I would say it was sort of a mixed bag. And my impression certainly is that there were European diplomats who felt very much along those same lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were, um, but it was also not hard to find European diplomats who were perfectly willing to uh, to countenance this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and uh, so I think it was. Um, Similar, but 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 uh, they were, I think, um, more compromises. Sort of the way people might have thought about it at the time. More compromises, I think, were made in European European diplomatic services than than in the United States. Um, they they were they were less worried about finding these circumlocutions, uh, near as I can tell. I I I'm just thinking about like I've been reading um a lot lately about the Russian secret service around uh, this time period um, and reading a lot about propaganda. And they seem, you know, I don't get even the slightest uh, uh, impression that there was, you know, any kind of distaste for, you know, yeah. like there was a very active propaganda <laughs> apparatus. And uh, um, so I'm wondering, like, uh, the relationship between espionage and, and propaganda, were they? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know a whole lot about the Okrana, the Russian service, so mm-hmm. I can't really comment there. Except, you know, as as I imagine, probably everyone listening knows, uh, they were the ones uh, responsible for writing the protocols of the Elders right. of Zion, right? This is this is why I've been reading so much about them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, um, arguably one of the most um, influential uh, propaganda and uh, you know documents of all time and it's obviously it's an utter fraud from beginning to end but it's been tremendously important in history yeah, right sure. um, yeah so so propaganda is a really interesting word so these days we in the United States and I think in the West generally um, hear the word propaganda and it's got a very negative resonance sure. uh, for us um, that was not the case in the World War one era um, in World War One, um, propaganda was first off recognized as being necessary for the war effort by all the powers involved. Um, and secondly, propaganda was bad when done by the bad guys, and it was good when done by us and our fellow good guys. Right? That's the that's the way it worked. Um, kind of like you know, more or less anything really. Um, and I 
don't know exactly when, quote, propaganda, unquote, became a bad word. Certainly by the time the Nazis rolled around, but I don't know if it – it's, it's one of those projects that I want to look into at some point. When did propaganda become a bad word? Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, certainly by the time of the Nazis, but possibly earlier. But during World War One, propaganda was not intrinsically a dirty word at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and there would be, you know – I mean, in the context of non-public documents, there would be very open discussions about, we need to have a better propaganda effort in Sweden, for instance. That was a real thing at the time, actually. Um, because German propaganda is eating our lunch, so, you know, American and allied propaganda needs to step up its game, right? I mean, this was these were not words that people were ashamed of uh, at all. And propaganda was something that um, was by no means exclusively an intelligence function in the United States, mm-hmm. um, or for that matter, among the Allies, um, but it was in part an intelligence function. And the idea there, I think, right, and nobody ever sort of really writes this down explicitly, I think it was just more an, an implicit kind of thought process, but the idea was, I think, twofold. So one is that at least some kinds of propaganda you don't want to be attributable, right? right? You don't want it to know, you don't want listeners or readers or whatever to know that what they're consuming is the U.S. government's message. Mm-hmm. In other words, you have to do this secretly. Well, who's good at doing stuff secretly? Oh, it's the intelligence services. They, they're able to do all this um, espionage stuff. The term at the time um, was not just espionage, but you'd also hear um, generically the term secret service, mm-hmm. which just meant doing secret stuff, okay. which might be espionage, might also be counter-espionage, and might also be propaganda or other forms of what today we would call covert action. So the experts in doing secret stuff, those were the intel folks, so give them at least a piece of the propaganda mission. So that was that was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it was if you're conducting propaganda operations, it's pretty helpful to know, you know, whether and to what extent you're being successful, right? Is your target audience hearing your message? Is it taking it on board? Is it, are they changing their beliefs? Are they changing their behaviors as a result of this? Um, so you can either, you know, if, if, if you're not getting the success you want, you can change what you're doing or maybe just give it up as hopeless and spend your money somewhere else. Well, who are the people who are responsible for knowing what people in foreign countries are thinking and doing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, that's the Intel guys, right? So again, um, they are logical uh, folks to be big players. Again, not exclusive players, but big players in the propaganda game in World War One. And is there any kind of organization to it at this point? Like, uh, um, or are these, when we say like uh, the intelligence guys, are they associated just like the... Um, Army intelligence, Navy intelligence. Some you were talking about some people in the State Department, or uh, are there? Is there really like a, a, a an intelligence organization? Or is it- yeah, so there was nothing that would be a good analog for today's Central Intelligence Agency. Sure. That nothing like that came along until 1941 with the creation of the thing that is uh, shortly thereafter became known as the Office of Strategic Services which then kind of morphed into the CIA after World War after World War 2 um, but the big players in the intelligence business on the US side during World War 1 were the Office of Naval Intelligence the Military Intelligence Division as it was ultimately named in the War Department uh, uh, in Washington the Bureau of Investigation, which is now the Federal Bureau of Investigation, mm-hmm. which did a lot of obviously you know spy hunting and counter espionage and counter uh, subversion um, on the home front, 
And um, then the other big player, very big player in the intelligence game, was the uh, the so-called G2, so the intelligence staff uh, that worked for General John J. Pershing, uh, the overall U.S. military commander in France. They had a very large intelligence organization as well, and they were not just doing battlefield intelligence. You know what's uh, you know what's over the over the uh, over that hill there, and uh, where do the Germans have their artillery emplacements? Though they did a great deal of that as well, um, but they were very much involved in tasking uh, military attaches um, to acquire information for them, of receiving and reviewing that information, of um, uh, helping in some cases pay for attaches or for subordinate staff to the attaches. Um, they were very much involved in trading intelligence information uh, with the British and the French and the Italians. Um, and also they ran um, uh, out of G2B, which was the Secret Service Division of G2, ran espionage and covert action operations that um, reached um, deep into the Central Powers. Um, uh, in a number of places, there was a fairly substantial effort that, that only seriously got ginned up in the second half of 1918, but a fairly substantial effort to subvert the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of other folks were working on that, too. But, you know, the, the AEF uh, Secret Service Division got its oar in the water on that. Um, and um, the United States also played a small but not trivial role in something called train watching which was a very important intelligence technique in Europe. It was pioneered by the British and the French and the Belgians. Um, But uh, we joined the game. And the idea basically is, so the Germans are fighting a two-front war. So they're fighting over in Eastern Europe against the Russians um, and um, uh, against the Russians. And they're they're fighting in the West against the British and the French and the the Belgians and later the Americans. And so... um, Sometimes, for various reasons, for instance, impending offensives, they'll transfer divisions, you know, from east to west or west to east on rail lines, on on railroad, uh, on on the railroads, and so the Allied intelligence services recruited people who, just in the normal course of like where they worked or where they lived, could see train tracks, <laughs> and. Um, so some, I mean, these were shopkeepers and housewives and just normal people, um, who who happened to have windows that overlooked railroad tracks. Um, and they trained them on like, okay, so a German infantry regiment has this many rail cars that look like this, whereas a cavalry regiment has this many rail cars. And then this other kind of rail cars, that's where the horses are. And an artillery regiment looks like this, right? And learn how to recognize all of this and just literally count rail cars of which type and then on the basis of that report you know things like september 1st i'm you know i'm at wherever it is i am in germany right and i i saw you know uh three infantry regiments and an artillery regiment uh, pass on the rail line going from east to west right and you report that and as that gets closer and closer to the front you get more and more granularity you know sort of way back in the far rear it's you know, they're sending divisions west, mm-hmm. um, and by the time you get reasonably close to the front, uh, well, so it's in this sector of the Western Front, or no, it's in that sector of the Western Front. So you can give some warning that, okay, this French army over here, of the however many of the French armies there are, this one over here is probably likely to be on the receiving of the end of the offensive, or no, the British Third Army over there is likely to be on the receiving end of the offensive. Um, so the Americans got involved in some of that, too, uh, late on in the war through the through the Secret Service Division of the 
American Expeditionary Forces. Um, you had mentioned briefly that uh, uh, around this time also the FBI was doing uh, counterintelligence on foreign spies. And so who was it that was uh, spying on the U.S. at that point? <laughs> uh, well, actually, uh, not a lot of people, it turns out. Um, so during the, during the period of World War I, when the United States was neutral, was not in the war, 1914 to April of 1917, there was quite a lot of intelligence activity um, being conducted in the United States by the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians. Um, we also actually know that there was quite a lot now being conducted by the British as well, but there was less awareness of that and less concern. Um, but, um, yeah, so the Germans and the Austrians were very busily spying here and also conducting um, propaganda ranging from, you know, very overt to black propaganda. And also the Germans were engaged in, ex in an extensive campaign of sabotage. Mm -hmm. Now, the United States was neutral, but it was selling munitions to the Allies, the British, the French, the Russians, etc. Mm -hmm. Right? The Germans, not understandably, weren't tremendously enthused about this, um, and uh, so there were something on the order, and I forget the precise number on now, but there were something on the order of fifty uh, merchant ships that were firebombed coming in out of the out of the United States. Um, many of them carrying munitions. Um, the Germans sabotaged famously. Um, a munitions dump called Black Tom um, in the you know New York City uh, area blew up a huge amount of ammunition, uh, rattled the you know broke broken rattled windows for miles and miles and miles around. That ammunition was all you know contracted to go to Russia, right? So they conducted these kinds of operations um, uh, uh, during that period that the United States was neutral, and but when the United States ended the war. Most of the people who had been involved – so first off, the German and Austro-Hungarian diplomats went home, right, because we broke uh, diplomatic relations. So sort of the, the spy masters behind all this activity weren't there anymore. Um, and most of the people who had been engaged in such activity um, either fled the country or, or laid low. Um, the number of cases of what we can now understand as bona fide, honest to God, no kidding, um, espionage – or covert activity undertaken at the behest of the German government during the period the United States was actually a belligerent in the war is very, very small, like really small, like fingers on one hand kind of small. Um, it had been quite a, ro quite a robust thing until we entered the war and then um, But that didn't keep the FBI and also for that matter the domestic counterintelligence components of the Office of Naval Intelligence and of the War Department from looking real hard for spies. Um, and saboteurs and propagandists and defeatists um you know you could get yourself in trouble uh with the uh with the authorities um just for being pessimistic about the prospects of the united states and the allies in the war not saying you wanted the germans to win just saying that you thought the germans you know were gonna win mm -hmm. um you 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 would there'd be a pretty decent chance the federal government in the form of either the bureau of investigation or naval or military intelligence would be breathing down your neck uh if anybody heard you saying that Interesting. Uh, yeah and you mentioned also that uh there were um what foreign agents doing some kinds of uh propaganda and black propaganda you mentioned specifically can you uh, like what did that look like and what exactly also just more generally is black propaganda yeah so black propaganda is propaganda that's not attributable to who's really behind it okay right 
so in this case, it would mean propaganda undertaken at the behest of the German government, but that doesn't appear to be connected with the German government. Yeah, so there was a lot of stuff, uh, varying degrees of overtness um, until the United States entered the war, um, arguing for the um, the German um, sort of political position that Germany was justified in invading France and, and so forth and so on, and um, urging America, America and Americans to stay out of the war, that, you know, this isn't our business, um, and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, to some degree, um, also attempting to um, sort of appeal to the patriotism of uh the patriotism for Germany mm-hmm. of German Americans. Um, so there was a great deal, um, and as I say, and some of this was you know self-generated by people, whether they were German Americans or not, in the United States who were sympathetic to Germany, and some of it was generated by the German government. Um, but again, most of this went away uh, once the United States entered the war, and then particularly then in the late spring, early summer when we passed the Espionage Act of 1917, which didn't just make actual spying, you know, sale of secrets to foreign powers uh, and that sort of thing illegal, publication of secrets in newspapers illegal, um, but also had all sorts of uh, provisions in there about, you know, um, activities or utterances which would impede the war effort. And uh, so all that stuff pretty quickly became illegal. Um, And while there were certainly people who, you know, in private or among friends or what they thought were was in private would express sometimes, you know, pro-German or anti-British, not the same thing, but they were often viewed as the same thing. views there was there was very little organized that was going on but the but the intelligence services and the bureau of investigation were very eagerly looking into this there was a great deal of concern for instance about the lutheran church Mm -hmm. so this is a period of time in which the you know these days the second most commonly spoken language in the united states after english is of course spanish Mm -hmm. well back back then it was german um and um and a great many of the uh, German Americans and German speakers were Lutherans, and um, indeed a great many Lutheran churches conducted services in German, right? And Lord knows, you know, <laughs> what the Lutheran pastors are telling their flock to do on Sunday mornings, right? Um, it, but it's probably not good, right? That was the that was the way the U.S. government tended to uh, look at this, um, and um, and 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 they didn't really have to have any specific instances of, of, you know, Lutheran pastors being disloyal or encouraging their, their flock to resist the draft or anything. I mean, just minor things like, uh, um, being, um, having not bought enough war bonds could get a pastor in trouble. Um, there was also a great deal of concern in the war department, um, in 1918. So when the United States mobilization is really picked up ahead of steam. We were slow to start, but by, you know, 1918, we were, we were mobilizing at a rapid clip. And the Lutherans, of course, wanted to make sure that all the great many Lutheran soldiers had appropriate pastoral care, right? Um, and so the, the church would appoint um, pastors to be, they weren't chaplains, they weren't in the army, but to go sort of minister to, you know, the, the people in this camp or that camp, 
that this camp, this army camp, or that army camp, um, sort of on a quasi-official basis, and um, already sort of Lutheran Church is sort of in in uh, you know bad odor from the military intelligence division's point of view. So them sending people to sort of lurk uh, at each army camp looked a little strange uh, to the to the military intelligence folks. And then the uh, the church asked these pastors to report back information on how many Lutheran soldiers are there you know, in each of these camps and keep track of, to some degree of their comings and goings. To the War Department, this looked like espionage, right? This looked like they are acquiring information, you know, military useful, militarily useful information that no doubt they're going to send to Berlin and will help Berlin understand the, the, the nature and the scope of our mobilization and when units are likely to be, you know, embarking for France and all this sort of thing. Um, the Lutheran Church just wanted to make sure that, like, they had enough pastors per, you know, number of Lutheran soldiers to get the job done mm-hmm. and that they were keeping track of their flock, mm-hmm. right? Um, there is – there is – again, you know, there are one or two cases of Lutheran uh, ministers who um, may have been on the wrong side, but, like, literally we're talking ones and twos. Mm-hmm. Broadly speaking, this was all done entirely innocently, but that's not the way it looked from inside the War Department and inside the counterintelligence uh, business. So, um, and, so. And, and in some ways, if I could just sort of just throw in one thought there, and it, it's 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 very interesting to me that a lot of the same kinds of concerns that you see the War Department, the Bureau, and the Navy Department expressing about Lutherans in the World War One era is very similar to what you see sometimes people talking about you know Muslims in the United States today. It's a lot of the same sort of rhetoric, um, right? Um, uh, it's there's some really kind of uncanny echoes there. Interesting. So, anyway, just just a stray thought. Now you had mentioned something about people selling secrets, and um, I'm curious. Uh, like on one hand, what kinds of secrets? You know, what do we? What 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 information was secret? What and um, uh, and then also like around this time, you're talking a bit about the. The, the concern about Lutherans and German Americans, and I'm curious about like the relationship between this and uh, the development of the uh, clearance process. Yeah, so um, uh, the United States did not have a lot of Americans in official positions who spied for the enemy. Um, I'm just trying to think if I can think of any any case offhand that we know of. Sure, there were some, uh, but again, it was not a tremendously um, big problem. Um, but the on, on, with regard to sort of the background investigations and keeping people who had access from secrets uh, from selling them, yeah, you started to see the the first steps towards what we today would consider the security clearance process, right? So today, if you're going to work in in a national security related job, whether it's in the government or whether it's as a contractor uh, doing government work, you're going to have to get a security clearance and people are going to investigate your background and your associations and um, and your, just generally your trustworthiness uh, and your loyalty. Well, in World War One, it was a it was a big war, right? And it was um, so the you know the United States military, like the militaries of all the other major combatants, you know, grew enormously, and um, and it was a in a lot of ways an information war, right? We talked about that with the style of war that the you know that the Prussians uh, pioneered, um, and also um, 
it was um, a war which was in part ideological. So there were, you know, there was this possibility that the that the appeal of Germanism, uh, for instance, might uh, sway people to uh, to sell secrets. And there and the military effort was so complex that there were all kinds of places in which sensitive information or uh, existed, um, which needed to be protected, or which people had access to sensitive equipment, things like airplanes, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the War Department, the Army, um, started identifying jobs where people, um, if they went wrong, could do particularly great amount of damage. Mm-hmm. So people who went into military intelligence, they had access to secrets. If those secrets got to the Germans, that would be very bad, um, right? So they were subject to in sort of heightened levels of, uh, of scrutiny. Um, initially, just the civilian employees, but then over time later, also the officers. Um, can similarly, I ask, Can yeah, I ask sure. you just what, what kind of information was it that was secret or sensitive? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so um, basically almost anything about the war effort was considered secret or sensitive. Um, but, I mean, the canonical things were uh, the, the, st- the stereotypical thing that, you know, um, that a spy might – uh, hypothetically sell to the Germans was the date on which a unit would embark uh, to cross the Atlantic and the port that they were leaving from and the port they were going to and somehow there was this fear that that information could get to German submarine captains who could attack those ships okay. right um, but it could be you know anything it could be you know the 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 um, the size of the American mobilization effort it could be uh, information about upcoming uh, you know uh, uh, war plans. It could be information about new pieces of equipment. Um, it could be any number of things, potentially. Um, but other places that people were subject to uh, particularly close scrutiny, um, a lot of the more sort of intellectual staff jobs and a lot of the more technical sort of staff jobs. Um, so um, uh, people doing, you know, um, uh, medical things, uh, for instance, um, uh, and one of the and, and the chemical core, uh, for instance, um, and one of the problems that the War Department sort of uh, uh, was worried about during the war was that a lot of these more sort of intellectual staff jobs where people have access to where people are doing sort of very um, sof- working with very sophisticated concepts and and information and and science and all that. Um, gosh. Uh, these are disproportionately populated by people who have German backgrounds. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and isn't that a problem? Um, had to think their way through that, uh, right? Because the German, Germany, of course, you know, so a lot of these people were, if not German immigrants, maybe the sons or grandsons of German immigrants, right? And Germany, of course, was probably the world leader in many industrial sorts of processes, a world leader in chemistry and science and just generally technology, right? Things that are very useful to a modern military, right? We have to build, we have to build, uh, you know, uh, ordnance um, and uh, that's chemistry and some physics and some engineering and the Germans lead the world at all of that. And gosh, there's people with German last names involved in the staff jobs overseeing that, right? Um, another concern, big concern, was people who had access to airplanes and it wasn't really like plans for like you know the latest greatest fighter plane it was more um 
planes were very rickety back then and very easy to sabotage. Mm -hmm. And so the maintenance people, for instance, uh, gosh, we, we, we would want to investigate them and make sure that they are 100% loyal because it would t take just a moment to sabotage a plane such that it'll fall apart in the air, uh, you know, once a pilot gets up in the sky. And that's just as good from the German point of view mm -hmm. as, you know, the Red Baron having shot that guy down. So, um, yeah, so there was started to be more and more of this. I mean, just the normal grunt, uh, the normal infantryman, the didn't have his background investigated, but a lot of these people at more of the um, elite jobs or at certain sensitive places very much did. And um, and so, how did that uh, process, like, uh, you know, how did they identify, like, how they were going to vet somebody as trustworthy? Was there yeah. any? I mean, because I don't get the impression that there was ever any kind of, you know, systematic study of what people actually do, you know. Uh, become traders or whatever that uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how how did how that, did that how... sort of work gets done today? But no, okay. and nobody was saying anything like that then. It's, this was very much operating off of um, uh, um, gut instinct, yeah. often informed by what we would now recognize as some of the worst sort of ethnic uh, stereotypes right. uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, so um, one of the big ways that these background investigations got done was by, in essence, subcontracting the work out to something called the American Protective League. Okay. Um, and the American Protective League was a civilian organization which was started actually just before the United States entered the war by three businessmen in Chicago who saw that there was a, you know, a coming national crisis. We were, a, we were clearly on the slide to war. And that this was that the federal government um, should should um, would need the assistance of patriotic um, sort of um, uh, upper crust Americans, if you will, okay. to help them hunt, hunt down spies and that sort of thing. And one thing led to another, and ultimately this American Protective League grew to 250,000 people across the country, and it um, got a um, a blessing from the from the Department of Justice to do investigations for the federal government, and it had uh, a liaison office in the military military intelligence division, and I think with ONI as well. They don't recall offhand, but a lot of times what would happen would be the army would say, "Hey, we're we're thinking of giving a commission to, you know." to this guy over here to be captain in the army and do some sensitive job, whether it was intelligence or otherwise. Um, he's from Cleveland, um, and they'd ask the Cleveland office of the American Protective League to go look into this guy, you know, talk to his employers, talk to his neighbors, uh, go have a quiet uh, chat with his, the, the manager of the bank that he does business with, uh, that sort of thing, and then write us a report. And that report then would go back to um, the War Department, and they would they would give a, an up and up or down decision based on that. Oh, it, it, one of the things I've really been struck by is the the sim, some of the like similarities between the uh, details of the of how a background inv investigation is done and just secret societies like Freemasons had been doing the exact same thing in the ex in almost the exact same way for a much much longer period of time. And uh, I, I I'm just. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just that's wonder if that was... about. That's very interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. Actually, I don't know if there's any. I have not delved 
deeply into the APL myself. Uh, there are a few folks who have done that. Uh, John Jensen, um, it's been quite a number of years now, but wrote a really terrific book on this. I don't re- don't recall offhand if anybody's looked at or if there really was much intersection with that kind with the Masons or others of that uh, of that type who sort of might have brought some of that to bear that's a that's a very interesting question I don't know I, yeah I think it's an interesting question too and I would just like maybe speculate that it was just like the idea that people had that this is how you vet somebody at the time you know <laughs> it was in, in the air exactly, yeah, that, that, yeah definitely plausible yeah, yeah. Um, and you also started to mention that this uh, uh, uh it, it, it somehow ended up being like a very upper class and elite. Yeah. So, uh, so the the folks running this, not just running this thing, the the membership of this organization, to, as I say, it peaked out at about two hundred fifty thousand, a quarter of a million people yeah. were um, were business people, almost all businessmen. I think there are a few women involved, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so these would be the the leading business people, i.e., people with money and social standing, mm-hmm. in you know the cities around the country, um, who were who were who were the members here, right? Um, these were not, you know, these were not the working classes, and these were not typically, you know, the the the, the so-called hyphenated Americans of yeah. the time. These were these were people with you know Anglo last names and big bank accounts. Uh, <laughs> and you're talking about the people who were who were responsible for doing the clearance investigations? Well, doing a lot of these investigations. Uh, Yeah, and the APL would also sometimes, if there was something um, specific going on uh, in a part of the country that, you know, MID or ONI wanted looked at, um, that they themselves didn't have the time or resources to do, they'd often sort of subcontract, you know, specific investigation, not so much a background investigation, but, you know, hey, we've heard rumors that, you know, the person who runs this hotel is sending, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, signals across the Rio Grande to somebody in Mexico, go look into it, or things like that. I'm, I'm making that one up, but mm-hmm. things like that uh, would sometimes be um, uh, farmed out to the APL. The APL um, also would uh, sometimes decide they were going to go round up all the young men in the local town who might not have registered for the draft, and so they'd go raid you know, bars and saloons and theaters and stuff and make people show their... Uh, Show proof that they'd registered for the draft, and if not, would like frog march them off to the to the draft board, yeah. uh, and uh, and otherwise serve as uh, convenient recipients for people who had seen or heard something suspicious they wanted to report. Right. Um, so you know, as you can imagine, they got a lot of garbage tips. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's really interesting that like uh, uh, I. I'm just thinking, like for like in the media uh, about uh, uh, um, you know British spies, it, it really seems to be associated with uh, aristocracy and and glamour and wealth and um, uh, and and I get that impression in in uh, uh, other places, you know, Europe and Russia, just that it, it was uh, espionage was often associated with uh, aristocracy, you know, or or wealth or. Um, yeah, versus here in America, it sounds like you're saying that there was uh, it was the exact opposite, or or is that right, or is that not well right? espionage as in um, as in people betraying their countries and selling secrets, oh, or no, espionage as in being way. intelligence officers, in being intelligence officers. Ah, uh, yeah, gotcha. Um, well, actually, in the United States, so that's an inter- a really interesting question. I've got a chapter uh, coming up in an edited volume soon that looks at this question with regard to this era. And then also a slice of it during World War II. Uh-huh. Um, so the 
So the the C, today's CIA or the CIA rather um, has a reputation less now than it used to, but a reputation of being a place that you know people who went to Yale right, right they yeah. go into the CIA right, yeah. um, and sort of the upper class upper crust northeastern elites like they were all the ones who would go to the CIA in the in the first fifteen or so years of the of, of the agency's history. And there's that's not utterly true, but there's more than a little truth to that. Um, but concomitant with that comes this perception that if anybody even remembers that there was U.S. intelligence before the CIA and the OSS, um, they assume it was more of a um, of a lower class, uh, less elite occupation. But when you start actually looking, um, and we have extensive lists of the people who served in U.S. military intelligence, stateside at least, during the war, um, and um, a lot of names of folks who served in naval intelligence stateside during the war. Um, it was a pretty elite organization, too. Uh, so this is a period of time in which um, only about 3% of Americans had any college education at all. But And I forget the numbers. I, I didn't know we were going to go this direction. But oh, if sure. I recall my chapter, it was something on the order of 25% of all these people had some degree of college, you know, massively more educated than the general population. And it, PhDs were not that uncommon. Like nobody got PhDs in 1917. But actually, if you went to MID or ONI, you'd find PhDs, right? Um, and as well as people who were um, – you know, uh, businessmen and that sort of thing, sort of at the upper rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. Um, the guy um, who who is um, often thought of as the the father of American military intelligence, a guy named Ralph Van Diemen, um, uh, who sort of invigorated U.S. military intelligence in 1917 and kind of put it on its path. I mean, he's a good example of this. Um, he had gone to Harvard mm-hmm. uh, and had um, become an MD. And then when he's when he was sort of founding slash expanding, expanding really the military intelligence division in 1917, he laid down this dictum that you know we should primarily be looking for the for the I think his phrase was the better class of men. The people who would feel that if they if they took a wrong step that they would have something to lose, right? People who had standing that could be lost, um, like businessmen, like highly educated people, um, uh, you know. So you see all sorts of bankers and stockbrokers and um, published authors and lawyers and all this sort of thing. He, on the other hand, he was. Um, he was very down on the idea of private private investigators, private detectives, um, who at the time, mm-hmm. you know, private detectives were kind of what the public thought intelligence did, right? You know, people who wore fake noses and, and yeah. like lurked in alleys looking for spies, right? Um, uh, Van Diemen's idea was that those people were not of sufficient social or moral standing to, to you know, is so, so, such that they should be allowed to play a, any significant role in American military intelligence, right? They're 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 not they're not like us, right? Yeah. They're, they're you know <laughs> they're these grubby little people, right? Uh, so yeah, it was not um, it was it was I think um, in a lot of ways that if you take a sort of a cross section of uh, of naval or military intelligence uh, during World War One, and a lot of these people, by the way, were hired through the old boy system, yeah. you know, old boy network, just like the early days of the CIA. Um, in fact, um, 
the assistant secretary of the Navy during World War One was a guy named Franklin Roosevelt, uh, who came from a fairly rich family. And, you know, he got a bunch of people in O&I just because, oh, hey, you know, my golf buddy, you know, Bob, you should you should hire him yeah, kind sure. of thing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, in a lot of ways, it really did look much like the early the early CIA. I mean, there's certainly some differences, but not not as stark as one might think. It's did so. did, did you mention yet what MID and O&I stand oh. for? Yeah, Office of Naval Intelligence. So that was the first Navy Intel uh, component set up in 1883. And then MID was Military Intelligence Division. Mm-hmm. So that's the War Department. So that's the Army side, the Department of the Army. Or sorry, the Department of War. Um, uh, and um, the opposite number to the Office of Naval Intelligence. MID had a bunch of different names, but by the end of World War One, it was the Military Intelligence Division. So that's just what I call it. Okay, so... Um... What was going on with the this uh, censorship of the telegrams and mails during the war? This yeah, war so one. yeah, yeah. So um, I haven't looked a lot at the collection side of this, but um, but but the um, the navy had responsibility for um, radio censorship. Now, radio, mind you, was not broadcast radio; wasn't really a thing then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were radios used for um, commercial and governmental purposes, um, and the Navy was responsible for policing those and making sure that, that things going out on radios, that like people weren't broadcasting secrets on radios. There was also a system of telegraphic censorship, which was overseen by the War Department. Um, and the idea there was that um, you weren't supposed to send anything, um, any um, encrypted telegrams, and that your telegrams that you sent might you know, we're, we're subject to being read by the government, mm. right? Um, actually, I take that back on encrypted telegrams. You were allowed to send encrypted telegrams. However, if you were going to do that, you had to use one of a certain small list of approved commercial cipher systems. Mm-hmm. So these days, we, you know, encryption is in our, in our time is it's an electronic thing. It's on your phone. It's, it's in your, it's in, you know, in the internet, it's a, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, back then we're talking about code books, right? Where you look, I want, I want to say the word, you know, cabbage, right? And I look it up in the code book and it's this five letter group that means cabbage, right? And I wrote that. So there was, it was helpful for commercial companies um, to encrypt a lot of their uh, communications for a little bit of security, but more it was for um, efficiency and cost savings, right? So you, so you could take long words or even phrases right. and boil them down to a five-letter group, and the telegraph company is charging you by, by the letter, yeah. right? Word, right? Okay, so you could scrunch it all down, yeah. <laughs> right? That's really why they do it. And so these were co- commercially published, right? You could, you know, you could buy you could buy any code book you wanted. Uh, there were lots of folks who were producing commercial code books. So as you were allowed to send encrypted telegrams as long as it was you know encrypted in a in a system you know for off of you know one of this list of however half a dozen or so whatever it was co- approved commercial codes. But other than that, no. Um, and um, so telegraph censorship was actually a useful form of intelligence collection. Um, that uh, like you know hey. Um, Sometimes interesting intelligence information was being conveyed either in incoming or outgoing telegrams. And also, and I don't actually know how the mechanics of how this worked on the collection end, but at least some mail was opened and read as well, domestic mail. Um, I do know that in the Military Intelligence Division, in MID, the code and cipher section, uh, run by a guy named Herbert Yardley, who became quite famous after the war, 
Um, they not only, you know, worked on breaking German and, and other uh, countries sort of official code systems, but also whenever um, a, an encoded letter was found in the mail that might be a spy trying to send secrets to Berlin or whatever it was, um, that letter would be sent to Yardley's section in the military intelligence division and they'd have to pry it open and see what it really said. Um, and of course, unsurprisingly, um, almost every single time this was uh, one of, you know, a couple of things. It was either um, friends or relatives who just thought it was fun to write stuff in code, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> or it was people um, conducting uh, illicit romantic affairs through the mail so, yeah. <laughs> who didn't want spouses or whoever to know what was going on. So, and yeah. Both of them were probably wondering why it took so long for their mail to arrive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's probably true. And so um, at the end of World War One, things kind of returned back to normal. Yeah, well, so that's um, that's something else that I'm grappling with uh, in the last chapter of the book that I'm working on. So there's this perception among the minority of people who, uh, you know, look at American intelligence history or have some awareness of intelligence history. Among the minority, there is some awareness. Hey, we were do some, doing some intel during World War One, um, but there's this perception that that basically all went away during the interwar period, and we had to reinvent it again when World War Two happened. Yeah, um, and that's just wrong. Um, is basically the short version of it. Yeah. Uh, um, the Office of Naval Intelligence continued to exist. The Military Intelligence Division continued to exist. They both got downsized mm -hmm. um, substantially, but so did the U.S. military. In fact, I ran the numbers a while back, some years ago, of the size of the U.S. Army and the size of the Military Intelligence Division over time from 1917 up to, well, into the 30s. Um, and right, and so you see this in, in, you know, sharp drop-off in the size of the Army. You see a sharp drop-off in the size of the Military Intelligence Division. And there's, there's an almost perfect correlation. Uh -huh. So intelligence got downsized exactly proportionally to the size of the U.S. military. Um, and um, on top of that, um, you know, there were some things like the... The U.S. military, sometimes it was the Navy, sometimes the Ar it was the Army, sometimes it was both, but never again were without code-breaking, you know, organizations. Uh, the Army was never again without um, units that did aerial reconnaissance, you know, put cameras in airplanes. Um, there was, uh, you know, um, uh, a, a continued emphasis, lower, but a continued emphasis on security and making sure that the military has kept their secrets and that there were rules and regulations um, uh, for people who betrayed those secrets wittingly or unwittingly. Um, and these ideas about how we'd done this, these lessons learned, uh, persisted. And a lot of people who had been involved in you know, one way, shape, or form in intelligence in World War I were either involved in intelligence again in World War II or were um, senior-level consumers of intelligence in World War II. Um, Joseph Stilwell, for instance, who commanded the uh, U.S. effort out in uh, in the China uh, China Burma China area, I guess, uh, during World War II, had been a core level um, intelligence officer uh, fighting in France in World War II. He knew his way around intelligence, right? Uh, so through all these different routes, there was there was a great deal of influence. It, it continued, and there was a great deal of influence of 
American intelligence in World War One, on on the interwar period, on World War Two, and I think even actually um, on the Cold War. Um, Alan Dulles, whom I mentioned in passing earlier, right? So he was um, famous in intelligence circles in World War Two for being the OSS station chief, if you will, in Switzerland. Um, and after, in the early Cold War, he became director of the Central Intelligence Agency, mm-hmm. a legendary director of Central Intelligence Agency. Mm-hmm. Um, he, um, he'd been on the periphery of intelligence activities in Switzerland during World War I. Right? I mean, he, he became aware of this. His brother, John Foster Dulles, who became Secretary of State, had worked for a time as an intelligence analyst in the military intelligence division in Washington during World War I. So there are these connections there, and I think they're not. I don't think enough attention is paid to them, but I'm I'm working on solving that problem. Buy my buy my book in a year and a half. So. <laughs> um, and and you you were also mentioning that there's some uh, attention transferred to the Bolsheviks and uh, radicals domestically. Yeah, well, that, that's absolutely right too. Yeah. So no, thank you. Um, that's one of the things, and and that relates back to our earlier discussion about um, uh, about espionage, is that you recall that. You know, before World War One, the idea was out there that, certainly in the military, that espionage is grubby and distasteful, but during wartime, we don't have any choice. Mm-hmm. We got it, mm-hmm. right? Moral compromises have to be made during war. Okay, fine. Um, so by that standard, you would expect, you know, the U.S. government uh, and the military to have largely gotten out of the espionage business at the end of World War One, but that did not happen. Again, there was a downsizing, there was a reduction, but it did not go away. Um, and literally within a week of the armistice being signed in November on November 11 in 1918, you see intelligence officials talking about um, in almost these terms, well, thank goodness we've defeated the German threat, but we have been noticing a, you know, uh, 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 an increase in the Bolshevik threat. And the Bolsheviks are a different kind of threat than the German army, but they are every bit as dangerous to United States security and we we need to keep in this business um, because they're coming to get us. And, you know, there was um, collection overseas uh, aimed at, at the, the no-kidding Bolsheviks, the Russian Bolsheviks yeah. and their European uh, uh, partners. Um, and a lot of that spirit um, also continued to exist in the United States, where the 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 few years after World War One, sort of domestic radicalism, which mostly wasn't Bolshevik, yeah. but to s- some people drew some inspiration from it. And if you were in Washington, you know, in a security organization, it often looked Bolshevik, yeah. right? Um, a lot of attention was paid to those folks as well. Um, and so, yeah, so I think. I think that that there kind of broke the back of the idea that espionage is only justifiable in wartime because the idea of war has expanded. It's not just people on the battlefield with guns. It's also subversion um, and propaganda um, by foreign or foreign-inspired enemies as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and remember, the Germans were viewed as being masters of this. I think that's greatly overstated, but the Germans at the time were viewed as being, you know, the world expert at propaganda and subversion, right? Um, and that propaganda and subversion thing in the American perception carried on, except now it's being done by Bolsheviks. So we need to, we Intel folks need to, you know, stay on a wartime footing, if you will, mm-hmm. exactly slightly. But that was basically the idea. I mean, I think it raises some really interesting questions, and I'm, I'm wondering if anyone, ever, like, really had these uh uh, debates or conversations about what it means to be an American, and um, you know, 
uh, at what level uh you know is being critical you know uh, an an accepted part of being you know being part of uh you know being an american citizen or or at what point you, you be uh people start being uh viewed as enemies um and i'm thinking specifically of like the uh the fbi's relationship with the black community during the civil rights movement was uh um you know they the, they were looking at them as communists and, and enemies of the United States. And I think today we would look back and say they were very much a part of America and American history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and I'm sure there are people who've done uh, really good work on that. That's sure. not something I have looked at, sure. but, but it's an obvious question because that's, I mean, that's, that's precisely the issue being raised by, by a great deal of this. That's absolutely right. That's, uh, that's absolutely right. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I can say though that um, there was some very minor brief flirtations in both naval intelligence and also in War Department intelligence in the military intelligence division with um, wanting to with should we get involved in things that are about partisan politics? Yeah, right. Um, and there were. There were some officers in, in both of those services who were arguing that, yes, that, you know, we need to know the party affiliations um, of Americans, right? Not just whether they're socialists, because socialists are basically Bolsheviks and Bolsheviks are enemies of America. But, you know, we should probably be aware of whether they're Republicans or Democrats as well. And that got reined back in, like, immediately, yeah. right? Um, and um, the Bureau of Investigation, and I'm not an FBI historian, but the Bureau of Investigation um, – got dragged by uh, some post-war presidents into becoming a little too much an arm of the, you know, the White House political effort. Yeah. Um, and ironically, in, you know, in retrospect, ironically, it was J. Edgar Hoover when he came in, who was a reformist and said, we're not going to do political intelligence. Um, we are going to um, investigate crimes that have been committed in like, you know, there has to be a crime before we get involved. We are not going to go sort of sniffing around with what people's, um, you know, uh, uh, political beliefs are until they commit a crime. Yeah. Um, obviously that evolved over time later, yeah, yeah. but, but he was very much a reformer. It was a real hardliner on that. So yeah, so there were things going on there. I'm not an expert in this, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an obvious and super important set of questions, um, that I think, um, World War One sort of launches us into. Yeah, and so um, when is your book going to be available for us to read? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, owe the, I owe the manuscript uh, in May next year to the University Press of Kansas. I'm not sure when it'll be coming out, but uh, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm well down the track. I'm probably 85 percent done with it, but um, so I'll get there. But uh, well, but great. it'll be a little while. Maybe maybe when it's uh, ready for us, we can uh, come back and, and have another conversation about it after I've, I've had a read. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love that. That'd be great. Thank you so much for doing this. It was right, really thank a pleasure. You. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Eight, zero, eight, four, one, nine, eight, end.